Good morning, church. It is so good to see so many faces. My goodness, when something's going on with a Hancock or a Haynes, they all come out, don't they? Church is going to flip up on its side here in a little while, I think. I trust that you have your copy of our Lord's Word. And let me invite you to turn to a few places this morning. I'll be running here and there for, uh, I guess, two or three different places. The first of those places, we'll start near the end if you find Hebrews chapter 11 and find something to mark that. And I'll give you a little time for that. And please, 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 don't, don't be concerned for the kids. We're used to it around here. Uh, I'm even used to some adults fussing from time to time during the service, and the kids are certainly not going to bother me. Hebrews chapter 11, then you can start walking to the left and you'll find 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Find something there. And then finally, Colossians chapter 1. And while you're finding those three, um, let me encourage you really, as uh, Jeremy did earlier, to come tonight at 4 o'clock. There will be a, um, I guess a guide uh, to help you uh, walk through this evening, but you need to start getting ready before you ever show up. We're at the most precious time of year where we celebrate the birth of our Savior, but we also need to remember that He was born to die. He was born to be a substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. And so when we come to the table, we remember His broken body and His shed blood on our behalf. And it's a great time to bring your kids, too, to help them keep perspective of what Christmas is truly about. God has fulfilled his promises. He has sent his Savior, God who is born a man, and that man came to die for mankind. And so I pray that you will come and join us tonight as we come to the table and remember uh, these very precious things. Now, let me start this morning how I usually don't start, and that's with an illustration. But I think the illustration will help prepare you for the whole sermon, not just this morning, but I think this is going to take me about three uh, to get through what I want to talk about. But if you'll remember way back in school, uh, if you can remember that far back, we began to learn to reduce things down to their simplest form. And I guess that started with fractions, where we began to reduce fractions down to our simplest form. I think we probably did that my senior year. Kids are a lot smarter these days. I think they do that in kindergarten now. But nonetheless, that's where you begin, and that's an absolutely foreign thought to you as a child of making anything simple. Because as a child, you don't know how to make things simple. All you know how to do is to make things very difficult uh, for your parents and for a whole lot of people. But as you get more and more mature, you begin to understand that, hey, I need to learn to make everything simple and break them down to the bare necessities. And then you have children and you're just trying to survive at that point. And so you just ask the question, hey, what is required of me? I just want to get done what is required because I'm about to drown as Andrea smiles and all that's going on around me. And that's an important thought. Because we need to also ask the question, what does it look like when we reduce Christianity down to its simplest form? Have you ever thought about that? I bet if I were to go around the room, everybody in here, almost perhaps, if not everybody, would testify that they have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, that they are indeed saved. 
But if I ask you, can you reduce that down to its simplest form, I wonder how many expressions and words that we would get on a piece of paper to try to understand what that meant. Now, I kid you not, that's a difficult thing. Because when you read the Bible from beginning to end, there is an absolute wealth of glory in there that I don't think we will ever fully comprehend. Even from the very first words of the Bible, in the beginning God created that doctrine there, you could spend the rest of your life pondering the glory of creation. And from that point, God begins to reveal himself to us and all of his wonderful characteristics and again, we will never satisfy our hearts with the true knowledge of God. We'll spend the rest of eternity understanding the great God that we bow before and worship. You go on from there and you see all the Old Testament saints and you begin to consider their lives and try to discern what it truly meant for them to follow the Lord in the Old Testament. You get to the Gospels and you see Jesus born and you begin to consider the Lord Jesus. And again, that's another person that will never even begin to touch the grandeur and the glory of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you get into the Gospels and you hear Paul's instruction to the church or the Spirit's instruction to the church through the apostles. And you begin to ponder all those wonderful doctrines and explanations of what it really means to follow Christ. So it's not easy what I'm telling you this morning, but I do believe that's the very thing that the Apostle Paul is trying to accomplish for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13, when he says these words, but now faith, hope, love, abide. Now I know you understand what that word means, but it is fascinating when you begin to study that word. It takes four Old Testament words to get to the word abide. Different words in the Hebrew are brought together to try to form a bigger picture of what it truly means to abide. By the time you get to the New Testament, in the Greek is just one word, and it's the word meno, and it simply means to stay put or to remain. In other words, Paul's saying there's three things that's going to remain in your life as long as you are in this life, and that is faith, hope, and love. They will always be a part of who you are in Christ. And so we desperately need to discern what these three characteristics are if we profess faith in Christ. At least you ought to know what it means to do so, right? Now, this is not the only time that the Apostle Paul uses this formula of what is, in essence, a Christian. If you had your Bible and you took time to turn, run with me to 1 Thessalonians 1. Let's look at a couple of verses real quickly, and then we'll go off to Colossians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Notice what Paul says in verse 2. We give thanks to God always. Paul is always doing that. But notice what he says. We give thanks to God always for all of you in reference to the church. Making mention of you in our prayers, something else the Apostle Paul did continually. And then in verse 3, he gives us our formula constantly. Bearing in mind your work of faith, there's a word, your labor of love, there's a word, and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith, love, and hope. He puts it in a little different order. 
Go with me to Colossians chapter 1 now. Just turn a page or two to the left. And we'll hear these three words again. This is the particular order that I like. Not that the Apostle Paul would ever ask me, but I think this particular order fits my mindset better as I work through the characteristics of what it means to be a Christian. But notice Colossians chapter 1, verse 3. We give thanks to God, again, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we have heard of, notice, your faith in Christ Jesus, the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Faith, love, and hope. Those three words, without a doubt, must define who we are and what it means to follow Christ. But I hope for some of you, there's already a question that's buzzing around in your mind. What about faith alone? I mean, certainly as a church, I would consider any faithful church would testify to grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And the whole church said, Amen. But can you really separate faith and love and hope? You know, we have a problem, and the problem causes much of our division in the church because I do realize there are different denominations that are worshiping here this morning. And what we like to do is we like to put everything in a box nice and neat. And when we do that, we cause division and separation within the body because you won't find the Apostle Paul doing that very often. In fact, when he lays out this formula for us with faith and love and hope, many would balk at the idea saying that I'm trying to get away from faith alone. I would tell you that I'm not. I'm simply showing you that you can't separate some things that we so dearly want to separate and put out in a box. Let me see if I can explain how these three are tied together for you this morning. And I think you'll see that you couldn't tear these, part, tear these three apart if you desperately wanted to. First of all, you need to realize that faith is simply a gift of God. Not everybody has faith. Ephesians 2 tells us that the Lord gives us faith. We all don't walk around with faith in our back pocket just waiting for the moment to put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're born with faith in ourselves because we trust in ourselves. I dare say many of you this morning trust in yourself. And it's perfectly normal and natural. You've done it since you were a child. You trust in what you want to do. You trust in what you think. You trust in your own desires and everything around you, you form and fashion in a way that will bring you pleasure. That's what it means to not follow Christ. You're Lord of your own life. And so somehow something's got to take place in your life to where you rip faith away from putting faith in yourself. And you put that faith in someone else, which is completely contrary to your flesh. It's so hard for us not to trust ourselves and to trust in someone else. But by the grace of God and the gift of God, we see where we are in trusting ourselves and we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me go on to say, some denominations lead people astray. There is a time and place where you are responsible to do that very thing. 
You hear the gospel proclaimed in all of its glory that Christ died for your sins, that he was buried and that he was raised from the dead and ascended into glory. There is a time and a place where you hear that for the first time. It's like having the deaf ears turned on for the very first time. You understand that you're a sinner separated from God and you see what Christ has done. You see the love of God and you put your trust in that and that alone for salvation. There is a time and a place. In fact, this morning, I, like the majority of us have gathered to celebrate these two young men doing that very thing. There was a time and a place where God grabbed a hold of their heart and they turned away from themselves and they put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me go on to say that faith says that it is necessary for salvation that Christ is, as well as Christ is sufficient for salvation. You trust in no other thing. When Jeremy called us to confession, that was the very first thought that came to my mind. Lord, I've brought nothing this morning but my own sin in a desperate need of a Savior. Because I know in my own life, I've got nothing else but Christ and Christ alone. And so he is necessary for my salvation, but he's also sufficient. I've got no good works to impress God with. I simply have trust in the Son of God and what he has done on my behalf. But faith, according to Scripture, is tied to love. Because in Romans 5, Paul says this, the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who he has given to us. Meaning at the very moment that faith moves away from ourselves and into Christ, the Spirit of God comes to seal us and fill us. And the moment he does, it's as if he brings a huge vat of the love of God and begins to pour us over until we overflow with the love of God. In fact, if you have appreciation for the language, poured out is in the perfect tense. Let me explain that. It simply means this. There was something that happened at a point in time, and the results of what took place continue on forevermore. And what took place at a particular moment in time was that faith sprang to life and love got poured out, and that love will forever make you different. If you've truly been converted this morning, then you know well the love of God because how could God love me, a rebellious sinner who the only thing he ever did was his own thing? And yet you feel that love, you know that love. That love begins to motivate the whole of your life until you no longer are just a sponge holding in that love, but you become a wet spring that matures out into a fountain where everyone around you experiences the love of God through you. It's called maturity. You can't tear those two things apart. It's what the Spirit of God has done. He has caused you to be born again, and He has overflowed you with the very love of God. There's something else that's taking place. That's Romans 5, but in Romans 8, verse 24, Paul tells us this, for in hope we've been saved. Meaning at the moment that you put your faith in Christ, you were filled with love and you were set on the shores of hope waiting for the Lord Jesus to come in. It would be awesome to think that at the very moment we profess faith in Christ, not only was the penalty for sin removed, but the power of sin was removed 
and the very presence of sin was removed. Can you imagine the moment coming to faith in Christ? You are perfected in every way, never to sin again, and you know Christ like you've never known him before, even to be in the very presence of Christ. Can you imagine if that was the case when we came to faith in Christ? We just get the keys to heaven and go on to glory anytime we saw fit. But we know that's not the case. So when we're saved, we're also saved in the sphere of hope, awaiting our salvation. And for many of us, we cannot wait to see his face. Amen? Amen. What you gonna do? We can't even begin to fathom to think when we see the beauty and the glory of our Savior appear in the skies. What a day, what a day that will be, we sing. But we hope for that day. And we started hoping for that day when we came to faith in Christ. And so when Paul says, listen, I've brought the essence of Christianity down into three words, faith, love, and hope, you need to examine your own life and see if you can discern those three things. Have you trusted in Christ? Have you known the love of God? And are you seeing that love begin to grow and spread out to others through you? And do you constantly wait with anticipation for the return of your Savior? And when you get old like me and those kids are gone, there's an expectation around this time of year where you see your kid's car turn in the driveway. I've gotten that three times with all three of my kids this Christmas season. I'm telling you, your heart just swells up. You go running out the door, tears are coming down your face. And you just pull them up into your arms and you kiss them all over their face. You just can't wait to see them. As you mature in Christ, that becomes more and more of a desire within your heart to where you just can't wait to see your blessed Savior and to know all the blessed things that he brings with him. If you mature to the place that you ought to mature, You'll lay on your deathbed with a smile on your face and a song in your heart, just waiting for the moment to breathe your last, to close your eyes and to open them again and to see his face. That's what hope does, and that's what is birthed in our very heart when we profess faith in Christ. Faith, hope, and love. Now, I wanted to talk about all three of these, but Cody warned me that'll never happen. So I really just want to expound on one thought, and that's the idea of faith, because I really want you to understand it. First of all, you don't have a demonstration of faith like you have a demonstration of love. Oh, we've had a demonstration of love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him, right? shall not perish, but have everlasting life. We know love because we've seen love hanging on a tree. But we haven't seen faith, not from God. Because if God demonstrated faith, he wouldn't be God because that would mean he would have to trust in something or someone else. God has never demonstrated faith for us. He's demonstrated faithfulness. Isn't that right, Sandra? From Genesis 1, he begins to reveal himself in all faithfulness. And you go through every word, every phrase, every verse, every book, until you come to the very end and you close it. And you go, my, oh, my, that's a faithful God. 
And the reason I said Sandra is because she's walked through some difficult days. She knows about the faithfulness of God, and so do some other ones that I see in the, in the crowd this morning. You see, God demonstrates faithfulness to elicit faith from us. And so we don't have the example from God, but we do have an entire record of his faithfulness to bring about faith in us toward him. But there is something that God does give us, and it's a rare thing. It's the clearest of definitions of what faith truly is. If you got your Bible and following along, I want you to run to Hebrews chapter 11 with me for just a minute because I want you to see the definition of faith from our own eyes. We love to define things all the time, and it's not a safe thing to do. You need to let the Word of God define every thought, every word, every definition for you. Hebrews chapter 11, notice verse 1, God says, I just need to define this for you so you won't get it wrong. Notice with me verse 1, now faith is, here he goes, the assurance, the absolute conviction, the absolute certainty of things hoped for. He just tied those two things together again. They're inseparable. Faith is the absolute certainty or assurance of those things we hope for in Christ. Notice it is the conviction of things not yet seen. So faith is that part of us that puts our trust in the promises and the person of God. And it's not like the world is some sort of hope so attitude. It's an absolute rock solid commitment and trust and confidence and conviction in what God has said God will do. That's faith. I reduce it down to trust because we've done so many funny things with the word faith. It's simply trusting God. A guy that I thought a lot of that went home to be with the Lord just a few years ago said this about faith. Faith is trusting God in spite of three things. The circumstances around you the consequences before you or the feelings within you. It says, I'm going to trust the Lord no matter what. No matter how I feel, no matter what's coming my way, no matter the consequences that I'll have to endure because of it, I will trust the Lord. And I want you to realize that that has always been required of those who follow the Lord. In fact, you do realize that was the original problem. Adam and Eve simply had to trust in what God said. And they refused to trust in what God said. And who did they trust in? They trusted in themselves. And that's why you are how you are, because you're born with that trust in yourself. But as a follower of Christ, as someone who's been born again, who's someone who's been saved from their sins, who someone has the expectation of glory when they die, you're someone who says, no, I'm, I'm not trusting in myself. I am trusting in the Lord. Now, it's interesting when we talk about, and this is something else that we have a tendency to draw hard lines with, with the old covenants and the new covenants and the Old Testament and the New Testament, but it's interesting when you walk into the New Testament, 
to try to find what New Testament faith looks like, who does God give us as our examples? The Old Testament saints. It's always been the same. If you're still in Hebrews chapter 11, I trust that you are. Let me walk through three very quickly for us this morning. And I want you to notice Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. God says, I want to give you an example of what New Testament faith looks like. Let me start with Noah. Notice verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to what? Faith. Now you can argue about what Noah had not yet seen. Some say it's rain. I would suggest to you that he had not yet seen God pour out his judgment like he was about to do. And God told him to build a boat to rescue his family from the judgment to come. And you've got to realize he had no comprehension of what was about to take place or what that was going to look like. But he had enough faith in God to do exactly what God told him to do. And it was the result of that faith that delivered his family from the wrath of God. And when you think about this, you think about what did faith demand from Noah? And it demanded obedience, but what did it cost? Who got on the boat? You get the impression that he barely got his family on the boat, but he didn't get one other single soul on the boat. Now, let me ask you something. Do you have any friends outside of the wife or the spouse that sits next to you this morning and the children that are gathered around you? Do you have anybody else in your life? Can you imagine pursuing God with such a faith as neglecting those relationships to the point that they think you're crazy and they want nothing to do with you? Can you imagine if your faith cost you everything, every other person and every other thing in your life save your relationship with God? You see, Noah's faith cost him dearly as he wrestled his wife and his daughters and their husbands on that boat. As everyone laughed at him because he had been unable to maintain relationship with them because of his faith in what God had told him to do. Evidently, they thought he was out of his ever-loving mind. But it was his faith in the Lord that delivered himself and his entire family. Look down in verse 8. I'll speed up. You get all kinds of examples of faith from Abraham because he is actually the father of faith, right? Notice by faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not even knowing where he was going. In other words, Abraham's call was this, I want you to leave your family. I want you to leave your land. And we understand from other Old Testament prophets, I want you to leave your gods that your family worships. How about that? I want you to leave behind the religion that you were raised in. I want you to leave behind your family that has raised you. I want you to leave behind your friends that you associate with and share life with. I want you to walk away from all of that and follow me. And faith was exactly how Abraham responded and he left all that behind. 
But it doesn't stop there. Abraham exercises even a more unimaginable faith. Look at verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who received the promises was offering up his only begotten son, and it was he to whom it was called, in Isaac your descendants shall be called. For Abraham considered, he thought, that God is able to raise people even from the dead. I'm sure you know the story where Abraham was called by God to go up and offer his son. Now sit there for a minute. Caleb, you got a son in your lap. We don't even pause to consider the weight of what God was commanding him to do. And up the mountain he goes. And on the altar, he places his son. And by the mercy of God and the grace of God, we realize later that he's painting a picture for us of the gospel because Abraham would not offer his son. But God the Father would offer up his son on our behalf. And Abraham was left with a glorious opportunity and responsibility to paint that picture for us so many thousands of years ago in order that we might better understand the gospel. There would be a sacrifice and it would pay for sins, but it would be the son of God and not the son of Abraham. Nonetheless, Abraham by faith marched up that mountain, tied his son on that altar and drew back his knife in order to slay his son because he considered God could raise the dead. And we marvel at that faith. But you do understand that faith demands something and faith costs something. We have so cheapened this with bow your head and close your eyes and lift up your hand. I want you to come to Christ, but I don't want it to cost you a thing. In fact, I won't even make it uncomfortable for you if everybody could just close their eyes with no one looking around that way no one will be ashamed that's shameful how would you like to sit down in heaven and talk to abraham about your mutual faith oh i realized you had to leave your family and your gods and your land and everything that you knew to follow christ but hey not me I kept all my friends. I lived in that world. I kept my gods. The only thing that was required of me was this little shameful bowing of my head, reciting a prayer, and, and quickly, well, they say, quickly slip up your hand. Abraham would look at you and go, we're not talking about the same thing. I don't know what you have, but it's not what I had. You see, I would submit there's, there's a whole lot of people in here who's been deceived. Faith is a demand from God, and faith is very costly when we trust in God. The last example I'll give you is notice verse 24, and this one will hit us like no other one. Hebrews eleven twenty-four. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. If you remember, Moses was raised in Pharaoh's house. Notice verse 25, choosing rather, watch what his faith does. Moses, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. 
considering the reproach of being a follower of Christ of greater worth or greater riches than all the treasures of Egypt. For by faith, Moses was looking forward to his reward. That was faith for Moses. Moses, you're going to be raised in the house of Pharaoh. You cannot comprehend the extravagancy and the wealth that will be at your disposal. Women, Moses, beyond measure. Gold beyond counting. Authority and glory and power that's unknown to the rest of humanity is for you being raised in this house, Moses. Moses' response, no thanks. I found something worth more to me than all that the world can offer me. You see, I found Christ. He is my treasure. He is my value and he is my worth. Do you realize what Moses' faith cost him? And do you realize what preachers lead you into in these days? Put your faith in Christ and then go and enjoy the pleasures of this world in sin. You can do both. Really. Can you imagine sitting down with Moses and, and sharing the stories of faith? Moses, I, yeah, put my faith in Christ. So good to be with you here today. I had so much fun in the world. I did everything lost people did because, hey, saved by grace, right, Moses? Everything they enjoyed, I enjoyed. Everything they participated, I participated in. I just wanted to relate to them. Can you understand that, Moses? And Moses goes, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. You see, I left all that behind. My faith required of me to turn my back on those things and to take up Christ. That's what my faith demanded of me. Did it cost you anything, Moses? Well, I don't know. I guess from your perspective, it cost me some things, but from my perspective, it was all gain because the only thing there for me was Christ, who is everything in the end. You see, when I reduced Christianity down to three words. I'm not even sure you understand the first word. I'm not even sure the church understands the first word anymore. Faith is not some little thing you did one day. It was not that slipping up of that hand. It was not repeating that prayer. It was an entire life that ended and was born again in a relationship with God through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's saving faith. And the moment that conversion took place, you knew about the love of God and the hope that stood before you. You know, I shared faith with a dying man one time. Being a pharmacist has afforded me that opportunity because people are dying around me literally all the time. I went and sat down at an old man's house and began to share the gospel with him. And he had spent the majority of his life as a musician. He could play any instrument and sing like nobody's business. He had led gospel singing the majority of his life. I went under the assumption that he was a brother in Christ. 
And I began to speak about the glories and he stopped me and he said, I've never made the change. That's what he called faith. He understood that there would be something different in his life when he took up Christ. And to my knowledge, he died without ever doing that very thing. I prayed with his wife and I wept with his wife. But he understood what faith was. He referred to it as making the change. Now I wrestle with that a little bit theologically, but I do appreciate that he understood a whole lot more about faith than many in the church today. Things were gonna be different because he would no longer trust in himself, but he would trust in the Lord. So let me tell you what these two boys have trusted in, and then we'll go into the waters of baptism and be finished this morning. But they've trusted in what is referred to as the good news. But it doesn't start with good news. It starts with bad news. And there's many of you that haven't gotten past the bad news because you don't necessarily believe the bad news. And the bad news is this, that you have missed God. Paul uses the word, or we translate the word in Romans 3, falling short. That just doesn't do it for me. Falling short gives the impression that you missed it by that much. You don't understand. It, it should be better translated, you've missed God. And that's exactly where you were born. It says in Ephesians 2 that you're a child of wrath, meaning that you're under the judgment of God because you're separated from God because you're a sinner. And I would argue with you about who's the bigger sinner because I would argue that I am here this morning. It's just the reality of how it is. Again, I'll take you back as you do what you want to do. That's in Jeremiah. We've been walking through a Wednesday night. The Lord says there, you've always gone your own way. That's what you've done. And to go your way is to go against God's way. And so the good news starts with the bad news that you're a sinner, you do what you want, and you're under the judgment of God because of that. But then things begin to turn, and I'll draw your attention to the table, because there was blood that was shed for you, and it was lifeblood, and there was a body that was broken for you because God sent his son to swallow that wrath on your behalf. We're at Christmas, y'all. It's when God fulfilled his promise and he sent his son as a savior. God became man. And being fully God still, he never sinned. But being a man, he could die in the place of mankind. And so God's good news, if you want to call it gets better, I don't know. But someone died in your place. And you ought not be able to get over that. Because it was you and it was me who deserved to die. And so you better hear the bad news and receive it by faith that you ought to be judged for your sins. You ought to be damned for your sins. You ought to be condemned for your sins. But the God that created us is a God who loves us and who is a God who is full of mercy and grace. And he sent his son 
to die in your place. Now, I can't define that kind of love. I can just marvel at it. And I hope you marvel with me. But here it comes. In this good news is the requirement of faith that you stop following your way and you stop living by your own wisdom and you stop living by your appetites and you turn away from your own desires and you see yourself in your sin and you see what great grace has come your way and you lay hold of Christ and Christ alone. You can't be good enough. You're not if you think you've offered up some sort of good work to be accepted by God, you've underestimated your sin and you've underestimated his holiness and glory. But don't underestimate his willingness to forgive and don't underestimate his love. Turn from your sin. Put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and take up the only thing worth having and you'll have it for the rest of eternity as you enjoy heaven in the very presence of God. Let's pray.